I realized personally that I had very little impact that I could make as an individual. As I reflected on all those startup experiences, particularly in realizing that many times it didn't make any difference to the world at the end of the day, whether they had succeeded or not succeeded. They just, they weren't adding that kind of value. Welcome to Create New Futures, thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders to explore how you can create new futures for you and for your organization. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with Bill Koenig. Bill has had a distinguished career as an expert in adult learning, leadership, and organizational development, and as an entrepreneur and a civic leader. He is currently a senior advisor at the Cambridge Management Group. I have initially met Bill when he was the director of OSR, Organization System Renewal Northwest. Bill is also the past board chair of the Woodby Institute and participated in the development of their leadership programs. Previously, Bill was the president and chief executive of Cantametrics and a founder and president of discovermusic.com and of Kidstar Interactive Media. Bill's PhD in mythological studies is based on his dissertation on leadership and the unconscious, and a master's degree in whole systems design. He brings together a big picture of deep cross-disciplines insights into human systems, transformation, and renewal. Bill, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you, Aviv. Great to be with you. What have I missed in your introduction? <clears throat> A lot of tragedies, soap operas. <laughs> we'll, we'll just ignore those. <laughs> good, good. So uh, I like to always start here and now. What energizes you and excites you uh, these days? Well, I admit to feeling a little bit of angst, partly because I'm in my early 70s and aware that I'm in the last chapter of my life and really quite concerned about what I would refer to as the existential crises that seems to abound at the moment, whether it's we're talking climate, inequality, democracy, it just seems like we are really seriously being challenged. And um, like other people my age can look at my two granddaughters and think, wow, what, what's really ahead for them? It'll be beyond my life, but it's, uh, it's really quite concerning. And 50 years ago, we were thinking about how we needed to save the planet. And it's really, I think, become obvious for some time that the planet can easily flush us out and just get rid of us. It's a big problem. And um, it's us that won't be around, not the planet. So how do you apply, how do you use your angst? Is it more in to trying to perceive, gain higher altitude perception of, of what is actually at play, or is it more through activism, or is it more in one-on-one -on -one mentoring, coaching to people in different positions, or, or, or are you more in the observant position? 
I find myself being pretty intentional about playing all of those roles and kind of revolving or evolving through each of those on, on literally a daily basis. I'm quite interested in trying to find a way to be of service in the, the here and now, how to do something with real leverage that at the same time feels like it's the most important thing that I can be doing at this point in my life. And what it doesn't lead me to consider or want to do are the things that are just in the totally in the present and kind of keeping things going because I feel strongly that we need more disruption. We need to transform some of our fundamental systems in order to get to a place where we can talk about sustainability, well-being, figure that we're really giving our grandchildren a fighting chance and not putting them behind the eight ball from, the, from day one. So how would you concretize? Is there an example that will provide a sense of what you mean when you talk about being disruptive and transformational and that provides you a sense that you're able to be engaged perhaps in a, in a micro way, but in a way that, that's relevant and is modeling what can be done. And most critically, that you find that for one reason or another is energizing and engaging for you. What, what would be an example uh, for that? Well, I do have a, a very clear example in front of me right now, and it's to engage with healthcare systems. And that's not because I have prior experience in that at all, except as a consumer or patient which has been quite positive. It's because we all are impacted by healthcare. And yet it seems like it's almost a classic example of a whole series of decisions made over a long period of time that continue to focus more and more on the short term, where, where literally all of our resources are being consumed by the last couple of years of a person's life. And it's a kind of heroic technological approach to trying to find more expensive, more complex solutions all the time. When in fact, there's very little attention being paid to the wellness longer term perspective. How do we get people to a place where for the most part, they're able to maintain their health? They're able to take care of themselves. They're not doing things that are setting themselves up for the catastrophic situations that hold so many people. And that's all um, very challenging when we've got so many complex, actually, I shouldn't say complex. I want to say complicated because I think there's a difference. Complex is a natural systems phenomenon in the world. Complicated is something that we humanly introduce. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think we've done it in such a way that it, even if we imagine what a healthy system would look like, it's very difficult to make that transition or more importantly, to transform it, to actually move up to a higher level where everything is different and it can't go back to the way it was before. Right. Would it be fair to say that two huge big factors in, in that is first of all, the, the myopic focus on, on short term in, in the marketplace uh, rather than sustainable long-term. And, and that coupled with follow the money and see who is incentivized <laughs> by the current system and why, therefore, the system is driven in this way. Would, would this be part of, of diagnosing this? Or, or what am I missing by describing these two critical vectors? You've, you've described it very uh, appropriately and accurately, I think, with those two vectors. 
And that, that's what makes it very similar to a lot of other things that we can see around us as well that, that are kind of screaming for attention and for a different approach. And unfortunately, it seems pretty clear that our political systems aren't designed right now to take that deeper, longer-term view, nor do we have the, the other kind of mechanisms that can give us much guidance about how to do that. It's, it's a challenge, I think, to make that leap and move into a whole new way of imagining what's possible. So with your focus and years of research and observation and, and practice around leadership, how do you approach conundrums like the one you're describing through the lens of, of helping leaders. And, and you also wrote to me in a recent note, you, you made a, an interesting and important distinction between leadership capacity and leadership competence. So, so two questions here. What, what is, first of all, what is leadership capacity and how is it different from competence? And can you reflect on these two in the context of the, the kind of example we are, we are looking at right now of a major crisis in the healthcare delivery system, which is likely relevant to uh, and comparable to other crises, as you, as you mentioned. But what is the idea of leadership capacity versus leadership competence? Let's start with the one we're more familiar with, and that's the competence side, mm-hmm. where what we end up addressing is what we can observe. What are the behaviors that we believe are necessary for success in whatever domain or whatever uh, line of work we would be exploring? And typically, that's come from other people offering their evaluations and help. And, and like a lot of other roles, leadership has largely been defined by developing competencies, the things that we believe somebody should know how to do. And yet, you will inevitably run into a wall with that approach because you will get to a place where the individual does not have the interior space um, or quite literally capacity to be able to make that shift into a different needed competence because they haven't been brought along in a process to raise their own way of seeing the world. And we all operate on some worldview, whether it's totally unconscious, implicit, or we've reflected on it, we understand better. What is it that we are using every day to make sense of the world, to make meaning of it and determine what role do we see ourselves playing in that? What actions do we want to take because we hold that particular view of the world? And one of the things that is uh, now available to us that, that wasn't literally a few years ago was a, ma- a measure that would allow us to understand where does somebody stand in that way of seeing the world, their own internal stage of development. And we were acquainted in this graduate program that you referred to, Organization Systems Renewal, with this instrument that was developed by Suzanne cook Reuter. Mm-hmm. And she did this work in, in completing her dissertation at Harvard. And it, it shows that if you take a survey of managers across a large system, that fewer than 5% of those managers are going to hold a worldview that's capable of transforming the system. Instead, there are going to be people who are still working their way up or just more likely in a lower stage of development based on just comfort and and where they have reached in their work experience and learning experience to date. 
And that allows them to be better at being managers. In other words, doing something more efficiently, but not necessarily doing the right thing. Right. And and it's kind of like at at the end of the day, you realize you put the ladder up against the wrong wall. Making that first decision about what's the right thing to do rather than how to do it right is huge. It's what we're missing today is that capacity to look at and say, this isn't the only way to do this. There's got to be a better way. And collectively, let's imagine what it is that we need that will pull us into the future that's good for all of us, as opposed to the way we, most of us have been trained. And that's how do we drive this system? How do we push it forward all around these short-term goals and, and needs and fail to realize that we don't really have a compelling vision of what would help us all to get to where we really want to be? Right. So I'm familiar with the model you, you refer to and also with its roots in um, integral meta theory and also where and how it differs from the integral meta theory or from spiral dynamics. So l- let's just read threads through some of the things you, you articulated there uh, for the benefit of capturing some very important um, ideas. First is the, the recognition that when we talk about leadership, when we talk about leadership development, we have to consider the interior space and the exterior space. So the exterior in that sense, the space where we practice and build new behaviors and new capabilities, new competencies that enable us to perform what we perhaps could not perform before and achieve results, new results and or different results. But the point you're making is wherever and whatever we do in the exterior is shaped by the interior landscape. And, and in some uh, cases constrained by that. And, right, right. In more cases, they're not. And so that's the, the first big thing you said. And I think the, the next big message in what you offered, for somebody to be a transformational leader, they would actually have to be a stage above, and that's a whole other concept that needs to be internalized with that we're actually looking at stages of development. And I, I think you're proposing that for a leader to act in a way that's transformative and bring to bear that capacity, they need to be anchored or grounded in a higher developmental level than the system, or else they cannot really be disruptive in that way. Yes. And, and, you know, I think it's one thing to, to even attempt to be disruptive. It's more challenging to think about how do you actually embrace the future and move forward in a way that doesn't cause all those people who are going to have to be playing a major personal role in that transformation to literally freak out and find out they are so uncomfortable with all these things that are being thrown at them that they are going to uh, fight or, f- or flee or do any of the other kinds of reactions that, that they experience in, out of that fear. So it's one thing to kind of, I believe, aspire to that transformation. It's quite another thing to understand how you have to work with the people who aren't going to necessarily be at that same level, but are going to be crucial in playing a role to uh, move to that level. And, and, and the requirement for that is you have to be able to move up and down the ladder or up and down the spiral to engage at different developmental levels and customize, curate your approach 
to meet people at their level while you agitate them where you can for new levels of development. Correct. And I think implicitly in the way you just articulated that very succinctly, it's to meet them where they are and not allow them to stay there. And instead to be able to participate in a process where they start to learn and grow and, and can embrace that change as it occurs to them. They can start to, to get excited about what this could mean for them, how uh, their own relationships are going to change. And that's what's been so exciting about having the opportunity to work with adult learners is that they, can, they just get on fire with their own learning. And it's amazing how fast they start breaking through these thresholds and literally start seeing the, the world in a whole new way. So uh, this is a, a conundrum that I have reflected on and thought about for now almost uh, 40 years. And I'm curious, what is your observation and adding up about the catalysts for change? So here is my unscientific, never published yet, <laughs> theory of transformational change. Somebody else should be writing a, a, a dissertation on, on that. But again, un, in an unscientific way, I'd say 80%, good 80%, 85% of people are not inclined to engage with change and develop up that uh, ladder. Uh, you can say 75, but I, for, for uh, argument's sake, I'd say 80 to 80 to 83%. And then you have a good 10% perhaps, who they, they never, in my observation, intended to look for development. But one of two or three things happen. They either find themselves in a system where, as you said, they don't have the capacity to meet the challenges uh, of their role, and they seek help, and they become open, they become vulnerable enough and open enough to internalize new ideas, new insights, and, and potentially uh, develop. And on that continuum, you have others who did not find themselves in, in that role of oppositional stimuli for development, but just hit the, the wall, whether relational, financial, health-wise, hit some kind of a wall that forces them to reflect on their life and make important changes. And then you have maybe the three or 5% of people who are just inclined, curious, they were born, if you like, with that latent awareness and they seek the learning, they engage proactively, they view their life as a work in progress, a lifelong developmental journey. So that's, I don't think I've ever spoken about this in public, but uh, what you said uh, squished out of me that never articulated before. Uh, unscientific observation. What would you change? What would you, uh, how would you comment on that? Based on my also somewhat limited understanding of this broad and emergent field, I'd say you described it precisely the way that people who have done the research have come to similar conclusions about the spread uh, or dis, uh, dispersion of, of these different stages of development within our society. And I think it, it because it, embedded in this is a certain level or a certain uh, nuance of hierarchy that, that we have to be careful about all this as well, that, that it, it can be a, a tricky landscape because it tends to be 
laden with potential value statements that aren't really appropriate. We all we need the people in every one of these stages, and the most effective people are spread across these individually spread across these stages. They can operate at any one of these levels. I believe that in addition to what you're saying, there's a a particular piece of research that I heard about 20 or 30 years ago that really stuck with me. And I would say this is the pattern that most people in organizational life have experienced. And it's a huge contributor to the problem we're talking about. And the, the pattern is one of the organization fundamentally not trusting all the employees and operating in such a fashion that the future is allocated to a very narrow group of people, the C-suite people, whose role it is is to sort of chart that future and then get everybody aligned to move in that direction. The, The thing that isn't accounted for in that way of doing things is that the people at the very top who are at least uh, probably halfway up that those stages of development tend to be people who can come up or be exposed to a new idea, reflect on it for a relatively short period of time, which could be weeks or months, and be able to then take action in it all within, say, four months or six months. And then what happens is that gets then uh, packaged in it, it's uh, put in front of all the other people in the organization said, here's what we are now going to do together. You have a critical role in this. And at that point, those people who are appropriately a couple of stages lower, because that's what their job requires, see that. And, and they have a much longer time to assimilate and take those changes internally and adjust to that, it's probably more in the order of six months to 18 months for them to even get their arms around it, let alone embrace it. And then <laughs> all you have to do is kind of uh, fast forward one click on the, this emerging video, and you kind of know what's going to happen. There's going to be a train wreck because the people at the top are going to say, we came up with the right answers. We gave it to everybody else, and they aren't acting the way we expected them to act. We need to do something different with them in terms of taking a different approach to those other people, which only exacerbates the situation because now those people are being thrown something different. They're expected to instantly digest and, and internalize and part of their new worldview. And so the problem is one of a pernicious downcycling where it just keeps getting worse and worse as, as you move forward instead of the opposite approach would be one where you recognize that there's a long time lag, you incorporate more people as much as possible, the whole system in this approach, so that they can, one, have a sense of what's going on, but more importantly, trust that the people who are actually responsible and equipped to develop these strategies know what they're doing, and they'll get behind that because they trust those people. They know they've been successful in the past. And therefore, you can move into uncharted territory and transform a system much more quickly than with the approach that we've got so much evidence has not worked in the last 50 to 100 years. Right. You're describing very well the set of problems and, and pathologies that we see 
in mid-size and, and large organizations, in, in all sizes of organizations, and that, by the way, <laughs> kept me and, and keeps me in business in a thriving consulting practice because this is exactly what I'm often brought to do to help facilitate and choreograph the kind of a all-system transformative movement. Whether it's easy to do this in, in the most holistic, integrated way, as you describe, where people, through the evolution of a system, actually are able to evolve themselves, is, is not easy and is a big question mark and depends on all sorts of factors, not the least of which the leader at the top. And, and so that's where some of the earlier comments you made there about, well, recognizing that there are different levels of development, recognizing that this, by the way, is a controversial, difficult to assimilate concept in today's space and the zeitgeist that, that is rebellious and, and resists anything that even hints at a, um, at a meta structure that has a vertical dimension to it that, that for anybody would uh, resemble hierarchical, even though people accept that there is hierarchy in, in organizations. And so your comment there about appreciating those more, almost through functional lens, rather than putting any value judgment and recognizing that people work out of the different value systems and they have a, an important and critical role to play. The conundrum gets even more complicated where sometimes you have a leader at the top who operates at a through lens and set of beliefs that are at one level and they will have sometime a person reporting to them or working two steps down that actually is capable of bringing to the table a, a more expansive in the sense of integrated and embracing capacity. These are actually the people that become the change agents inside out the organization. And when we work with an organization, it's critical to identify them and help them find their platform and bring their voice so they become a, a, an extraordinarily important catalyst for the kind of uh, broad whole system change you are describing. Couldn't agree with you more in, in all of the, your characterizations there. And one way that, that I recently saw that challenge described was a sort of unexpected setting, but one that I think is shown over and over is um, oftentimes on the front edge of, of these kinds of uh, initiatives, and that's the military. And this particular book was addressing the fact that if you look at what's happened in the training of Navy SEALs and other special forces groups, but particularly the Navy SEALs, they are really way out there in terms of, of recognizing that everybody has to share the leadership. There has to be a kind of mind meld where they have a collective consciousness about what's going on in the moment because they have to be able to adjust and do things based on quite literally knowing what the other person is, other people in, in this group are doing when they can't see them, can't hear them, can't communicate with them. And they've found out how to do this. And the, the point of the, this whole approach was to say, any organization needs to develop their own special forces who can take on some of these really 
uh, radical changes that, and transformations that need to occur. But it's not the whole organization that, that's going to need to do that and pivot in a heartbeat. You have to have this combination, the both and, of a horizontal organizational structure that maintains itself in the, the present, given all the factors that hold it in place and relationships and everything else. And vertically, you have this uh, group that can move up and down and very quickly take on something that is not part of the current status quo, but is desirable and is a way to literally prototype. And I thought that was a very powerful metaphor for what organizations, uh, I think, are going to need to go through because, as you point out, the CEO may not be capable of this kind of transformation or change themselves right now. And that's not necessary if they trust the people who do have these special forces capabilities or capacities and recognize that they have to keep the organization alive and going forward in the current state, but are at this and not but, (laughs) and at the same time are focused on how do we set the stage for us to move into the future in a whole different way? And it's not as much disruptive as it is evolutionary. Yes, just some number of fascinating doors or or elements in what you're describing. One level, what you're describing has been implemented in many organizations in the idea of we need to have the run the business part of the organization and the transform the business different team or organization within the, the bigger system. So that's one way to, to translate what you are describing. But then if I listen carefully to the, the examples you offer, the, there is a, a more nuanced and even more complex, not complicated, but complex and sophisticated suggestion there, which uh, brings to life a meta trend that is uh, appearing at different levels and through different systems. And it is this idea of an empowered, distributed permission. So very much in the same line, same vein with the army, the recognition that there are people that sit in command center and they lead an operation, but they recognize that the people on the ground in in any and every theater, they are actually in charge in the position they're in because there is intelligence and velocity of change that occurs right there in the moment in front of their eyes that they must be able to respond to. And so therefore, the historic chain of command had to be updated and people in the front line were needed to, uh, even the line soldier, when they are in the line of fire, they are actually in charge in that position because they have to be. And, and then couple that with the idea of what's now moving, even in, in technology and this idea of edge computing, which is a technological trend to support and empower as much as possible the complete visibility, the, the complete operability, the, the complete capacity, to use the word you, you center this conversation on, of any and every individual at the edge of the system. And when we internalize it in this way, the, the historic pyramid shape configuration of an organization where the power sits in the center, say with the CEO, is transformed to something that is much more of a network 
distributed, in the moment, reconfiguring, responding, and working together. And then, of course, yes, there are important functions and roles, and you need to be able to step back and debrief and report. But in terms of the the operation, I hear in, in what you offered there, this mega trend that's appearing in a very broad way through many different systems and, and levels, which is ultimately about the, the, the empowerment and the, the fuller release of what each and every individual, the role that each and every individual can play and the capacity that they can bring to bear and unleash. Well said. Uh, I think that was a, it was a great summary of that. And I would simply add from my own reflections over the last few years, having been involved with a graduate program first as a student and then as a program director that actually recognized its role was to develop that kind of capacity, that it's not done in a very typical fashion. In fact, it's almost um, countercultural when you think about general academic environments or leadership development programs, because they are, again, for the most part, focused on developing competency and uh, not around developing the interior. One of the most telling moments of our, my experience in a, a university setting offering this graduate program was when one of the deans said, how can you possibly offer personal development? How, how would you evaluate that? And by its nature, the person in that role asking that question is saying, we consider that completely out of bounds because it's not something that we can apply our our existing techniques and processes to even wrap our minds around, let alone all of our operational uh, systems. Think of a little bit more about what that person was saying. It's pretty odd that personal development wouldn't be the leading edge, not the trailing irrelevant edge for the centers of, of learning. Where else have we seen that a system excludes the most central, most fundamental aspect of its reason for being? The, 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 the quickest thing that comes to mind is that up until recently, most medical schools never included any learning, any study about nutrition. <laughs> when, when, we, when we know for decades, uh, but there is a lot of new cutting-edge knowledge about this, that there is nothing apart from hydration and proper rest and sleep that right there with those two factors. The third, vac- uh, the third factor is what do you actually put into your body? But most doctors consider it to be outside of their portfolio of uh, skills and influence with their patients. I, I'm sure we could go right down the line and go through almost every domain of our um, systems, particularly when you think about them as economic capitalist systems, and we'd find that that's almost always the case, and largely because of that short-term focus again. Indeed. So let's do a a turn here in the conversation, because I'm interested to rethread through your journey and how you got to play in these fascinating spaces and such. So take me through your early formative stage. What inspired you when you were growing up? What was something you were looking forward to? Give me a picture or two from that early formative stage. Sure. I think about 
When I was like in the eighth grade, that level, there were probably two themes that were kind of dominating my life. One was sports. I, I was really attracted to participating in sports and the team aspect of it, not the individual kind of thing, but it was exciting to, to think of and experience being part of teams. And I also experienced more difficult to describe social context, what it was like to be in cliques of uh, young people who, by and large, were automatically focusing on pulling people together in order to make themselves different than somebody else. Mm. And and I became that somebody else for a group of, of key people at that particular stage of my life. And I think it was hugely formative in helping me to understand that the most important thing for me wasn't to be liked by everybody and that my being clear about who I was and being true to myself was a challenge in itself and one that required that I continue to be attentive to that and not start compromising in ways that I would be intentionally saying, I'm not going to be myself because it's more important to fit in and be what somebody else has decided is it's more appropriate or more comfortable to them to have me in that role. I, I think as I look back on it, that was quite significant. Well, certainly at the eighth grade. So how is that awareness then evolving in you in the teen years and as you are approaching uh, graduation from high school and and you're beginning to contemplate direction, the direction of your life and what you will do and what you wanted to, to study and where you wanted to, to go. How, how is that evolving into that phase? To start with, it continued to occur within that sports arena, particularly as I realized that I had the opportunity to kind of chart my way by saying, this is what what I want to do. This is the position that I want to play. I want to be good at this. I want to be counted on by other people to be able to to do that. And I ended up really liking and being good at throwing something. So I was the quarterback on the football team and the pitcher on the baseball team. And yet I didn't get a chance to start at either one of those positions until I was a senior. I got to play a lot, particularly in all the critical kind of situations, but I wasn't the, the starting player. The coach had a preference for letting the upperclassmen be in those positions, which, which was fine because actually it was a huge lesson to me that through perseverance, resilience, I was able to finally succeed. And we won the state championship in both football and baseball my senior year. And that team experience, it, it was unbelievable. It just gave me so much awareness of what it was like to be part of a group of people doing something together and having so much success. Somewhat minor example, there was an occasion, I think it was my junior year, where a teacher was having some real difficulty sort of controlling the class and making things move forward. I, I don't even recall exactly what the subject matter was, <clears throat> but she became so frustrated. This was a nun, so you can kind of understand it was in a particular social construct. And she finally left and wouldn't come back into the classroom. And my approach was to sort of say, I'm, I want to assume a leadership position and set the terms on which she would be able to come back. <laughs> hmm. And we literally spent several class sessions working on this. And 
it was so, in a way, disturbing, but so helpful when the principal came in and said, forget what you're doing. This person's coming back in and the teacher is, is now in charge. And I said, okay. And I got up and walked out of the classroom. And so then the key moment was actually from a leadership standpoint, it was sitting there wondering, is anybody going to follow me? <laughs> and it turned out only one person did. And by their nature was always somebody who was going to be on the other side of anything. And so it was like, uh-oh, <laughs> that didn't work out so well. <laughs> and yet I think it was hugely powerful for me to be able to have that uh, moment to make a choice and to learn what the consequences were. You tested your boundaries, you tested your power, you tested your influence. Yes. And, um, you know, in retrospect, I would do that over again anytime because nothing bad happened from it. It would have been a lot worse had I sat on my hands and said, oh, gosh, it didn't work out the way I wanted. I, I so wish that you know, something different would have happened. And, and I would have lost some of my confidence and initiative to do things. But by doing it, it was like, okay, I'm ready to step out if I need to, to, to do something, if I really believed in it, that sort of meets some threshold criteria. So the two propelling forces you're describing uh, all the way from early eighth grade and through the, the growing up years, uh, one, that propulsion to, to find who you are, to the, the self-inquiry, to find what's true for you. What is your voice? How do you feel? And uh, where do you stand with things? As a, as a first principal inquiry, almost to the exclusion of being liked and being popular, uh, but finding that, that, so that's propulsion one. And then right next to it, on the other end of the polarity, the propulsion of finding joy and curiosity and energy in the social interaction and testing your capacity to lead and, and influence and such. So, so how do you take these then propulsions post-graduation into the next stage of your life and, and into beginning to shape your career? How are these propulsions and what else joins you in the next phase of your life? Well, I can add one more little detail, formative detail, I think, to the sports part of that. I, I did play college football and was even given mention for two years in a row in that august, highly regarded sports magazine called Playboy. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you, and, you, were, uh, you were traveling in high places. <laughs> well, you'd have to see the actual uh, <laughs> placement in the, in the uh, magazine to understand it. <laughs> but go ahead and imagine all that. And, yeah. and um and yet, when it came to my senior year, I, I literally was beat out by a junior and spent the year sitting on the bench. And, and that person was probably deserving. It was a different style of play and everything else, and the, and the coach was making a decision, which he had every right to do. And that person went on and played professional football in Canada for five years. So, you know, he clearly had the skills. It was really important for me, I think, to have that wilderness experience, as I think would be a most appropriate way, right? where you, you've got all these aspirations, all these things are kind of happening around you, and you get excited and focused on where it's all going to lead you, and all of a sudden the bottom falls out. 
and it doesn't work out that way. It's those uh, long dark nights of the soul, as I refer to them, are absolutely critical, I think, to that formation of interior capacity. Indeed. So bridge for me the journey from there to you being a player in the entrepreneurial startup space. Uh, how did that come about? It, I think, happened pretty naturally by just combination of following my instincts and intuition and, and having some amazing kind of doors open for me. It, um, it was clear to me pretty quickly that there were kind of two paths that, that I was interested in and could have walked down. One was, was the consulting because it was, would have been an opportunity, and, and you can speak to this much cl more clearly than I can, to be in, engaged in a really wide variety of, of learning environments and challenges and just exciting kind of situations that would be posed. And I had some experience of that coming right out of college that was quite significant in terms of what I was given the opportunity to do. And yet there was something also clearly missing for me in that. And so I walked out of it, was able, because I'd already been doing this in the consulting capacity, to start an organization. And what it was clear to me was that I was fundamentally a builder. I wanted to, to have the chance to start with a clean sheet of paper and create something, enlist the people who would, would be needed at partner level, investment level, client level. All, all those different things to engage in some kind of uh, collective activity. And that became a kind of pattern that I followed for probably the next 30 years of my life and ended up having huge range of experiences out of all that. And one that, that was, I think, quite natural to me. Critical insight to recognize early in your professional journey that, yes, you're actually inclined and interested to be a builder rather than the consultant to the builder. Of all those building experiences, what, which one do you feel most proud about or, or was the, the most critical in terms of the learning experience that it provided you? That's pretty easy for me to answer. It was a venture called Kidstar Interactive Network that you mentioned. This was a radio station aimed at preteen ch children. It grew sort of out of it, somewhat of a consulting experience where I was introduced to somebody who was kind of looking for their next thing to do. And we were having dinner one night and advising him or trying to help him find that thing to do. And I said to him, one of the things I've always been excited about is starting a children's radio station because it seems like we just miss that in our society. And I've been saying that to my adult peers for 20 years and as parents, they just light up and say, yeah, we, we really do need that for our kids. Remembering what our own experiences were with that theater of the mind that occurs with radio. And so he said, yeah, he drops his fork. He says, yes, that's what we ought to do. And I said, wait a minute, what's the we here? I'm just trying to help you figure something out. I'm not interested in this. Hmm. <laughs> and yet we did it. And it um, was something that engaged me for four years. And during that time period, I was so clear that this was a calling. I remember, and I can still visualize where I was on the street when this epiphany occurred to me. And it was, I am doing exactly what I was put here to do. I mean, it, it was one of those uh, really deep, deep intuitions. And yet, without question, that was, was a high point. It was amazing what we were able to accomplish. 
what talent was attracted to this and the impact that we had. You know, I could go on and on about that. And yet it required $25 million to pull it off. And we knew that from the beginning because it had to be national and had to, and we were only able to raise 13 million. So it only lasted uh, in practice and operating sense for about three and a half years. And about two thirds of the way through that, I realized I don't have this calling anymore. I don't feel like I belong here. I'm not able to really contribute anything at this point of significance. There's a conflict that exists with one of the other partners that I don't know how to resolve. And if I'm not able to solve the problem, I'm part of the problem. And I, I just thought I'd step away. And I did. And it was the right thing to do for sure for me. But it was such a, a clear example of being able to be in the right place at the right time for a period of time, not forever. And what it means to experience a calling. I had the opportunity later to introduce a quote or a phrase from an individual named Frederick Beekner into this graduate program on leadership and organization development around the theme of vocation. And Beekner described vocation as where your deep gladness meets the deep hungers of the world. And I thought, wow, you know, to me, that was so clear that I had experienced that. I knew what that meant. And I knew how many of us walk around with that yearning to be able to have that kind of work to do in the world. When we in introduced that to the students in this program who would range in age from mid-20s to mid-60s, every one of them at both ends of the spectrum, including the two ends of the spectrum, all could identify with that quote. And that was why they were in the program. Yes. Yeah, beautifully said and represents uh, a core truth. In addition to these two critical insights for a builder, namely, first, that you need to know to recognize when you resonate with something that presents itself to you as a calling, number one. And number two, you need to know when it's time for you to exit the system and step back, either because there is no longer the, the same impulse that was initially there or because the system has now moved in a direction that you no longer feel ready to uh, continue to lead it or for a variety of other reasons. So in addition to these two insights, what other one or two key learnings would you distill from the experience of being a builder with different adventures and uh, systems? Well, one, one that I learned the hard way and why I eventually was led to get into the graduate program that involved with later in my life was the notion of outrunning your supply line. <laughs> Explain was, that. Or outrunning your trap line or however. And, and that was, particularly in a startup environment, there's so much of a trap, perhaps, is the way to describe it. it it's a, an addiction to adrenaline that just, you know, you get started on, and after a while, it's easy to just live your life that way. Because there's so many things that need to be done and having to make those quick choices about where to put the emphasis on which way to um, pivot in any moment. In a, in a startup, you can do that because you're so small and so agile. And yet, it's also easy, as I learned, 
to get out in front of everybody and keep moving in that direction because you can do it fast alone. But to be sustaining, you have to do it together, which means you go slower, but you go further. And I would outrun the people that I was counting on to support me and end up kind of being out on the end of a limb and having it sawed off in part by myself, in part by them, just <laughs> also when you get the message through that we can't do this, it's not possible. And that was also, I think, a reflection that I didn't know how to properly motivate people that I was uh, driving myself as, a, as an example of what everybody should do, not necessarily that I needed to drive them and wouldn't drive them, but it wasn't a sustainable model for me to be doing that and thinking that everybody else was going to somehow fall in line and that was going to be the way we were going to work. And that was a, a kind of ceiling that I hit. And I went looking for a graduate program after finding a mentor and just trying to understand what am, what am I missing here? What is it about the organizational system that I don't understand because I'm not able to get it to make some of these big shifts that I want to and know that a success depends on making those shifts. And instead, I'm acquiring what I think of as spirit wounds on the part of organizations where I come away seriously wounded at kind of a soul level from the experiences. They were so disappointing. They were so unclear, so disturbing in terms of how much they impacted me and, and not having a way to resolve them. And yet, ultimately, they serve as teachers and promoters of learning for you because that difficult experience and having to learn that as a leader, part of your big part of your job is to bring people along, that ultimately graduates you into the insight and, and the self-inquiry that brings you to something like OSR. Yes. And, and I would say that when I would interview people to enter this graduate program later on when I was a program director, I would say 80% of them could identify in a heartbeat their own spirit wounds and their motivation to try and do something about an organization that they felt had hurt them or they had, didn't have a, the capacity to reorient the organization or, or make it more healthy. So how are you then impacted and what are for you the transformative insights that you were able to internalize through your experience with organization systems renewal. And for me, the, the important distinction there in the name, it's not just organization systems, it's the word renewal and what that promises and, and attracts to itself. Exactly, because it, it just points to the notion of health, when you, you're renewing for the purpose of health. There are... Um, all kinds of takeaways from that experience, not least of which is this whole fascination on my part in commitment to capacity building, because that's what we were doing. And it only became, I think, to me anyway, really clear in the last few years that it was something that we could uh, refer that explicitly to and understand these stages of individual development and be able to concentrate our efforts more fully on how to make that happen and know that we could also measure it in a way that gave us real confidence that that was one of the outcomes of our program. And on the bigger scale or bigger stage of life, I'd say 
there is no bigger outcome that you could really hope for from from any kind of program like that, whether it's uh, specifically about building the individual or its external kind of organization in the world. If it's building that kind of capacity, it's going to succeed kind of by definition. And yet most organizations don't do that. They don't operate that way. Even, you know, if they turn out to be a B Corp these days, beneficial corporation, it's still a very limited way of approaching that whole process. The other side of it was that I realized personally that I had very little impact that I could make as an individual. As I reflected on all those startup experiences, particularly in realizing that many times it didn't make any difference to the world at the end of the day, whether they had succeeded or not succeeded. They just, they weren't adding that kind of value, except perhaps the Kidstar example. And yet in the role that I was able to have, that calling that I was answered, it was the chance to stand behind people and support them and put a multiplier of, you know, literally hundreds against what the outcome that I could have, I couldn't even scratch my way to to 1% of that on my own. I can't tell you how satisfying that was every day to get up and think about what I was going to be doing from that perspective is getting behind these people and supporting them. I think the closest that I've come to seeing that articulated was in Robert Greenleaf's essay about servant leadership. He described that every leader has the mandate to first develop the people around them. And I wonder how many top leaders in organizations or or top managers for that point, part, it doesn't, I think it's just as applicable to both, really do take that on as to say, my, my role here is to develop those people around me. Because if you do, you it's a multiplier. Indeed, that is the first job of a leader to build and nurture the next uh, generation of, of leaders. So connect, uh, connect that story for me with two other data points along your journey, which is what propelled you into mythology and Jungian psychology and religious studies and how all that is shaping uh, the focus of your dissertation. Just connect the, the dots for me of, of those important elements in how you develop your journey. Let me ask permission to to do that by introducing a a story that I'll try and keep brief, but it occurs right before time that I I actually entered the OSR program. Sure. So this was literally uh, occurred three years after I went through that OSR program on my own. I was involved in a sea kayaking experience in Puget Sound in the middle of the summer taking a young man out who'd never been in a kayak before. We were in double kayaking late in the evening. And it turned out that it was a very stormy night. And we capsized in Puget Sound, which is quite cold, and found ourselves in the dark uh, out in the middle of the sound, drifting further out because of the tides and the wind as each moment passed. And we were unable to swim against the current and the wind. And so we concluded we, we were just there and nobody was going to come to rescue us because nobody else knew we were out there, we thought. And we were there for two and a half hours. Lots I could say about what it was like to feel like I literally was dying and came pretty close to that. And yet we were rescued by helicopter by the Coast Guard and, and both survived. 
And the, the, the key to this, though, is this is... How did they know, how do, how did they know of you and, and how did they find you? turned out that we were going across a bay and, and somebody on the other side of the bay that we were going toward saw us out there and, and commented to each other, what are they doing out there? That's crazy. You know, the kind of swells and everything else and the conditions. And they called the Coast Guard and said, somebody's out there. Well, they, they saw us capsize. They called the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard put a boat in and they had to call them back and say, you're looking in the wrong part of the bay. And uh, they couldn't see us anyway because of the swells and everything. And so they re-vectored them. And then they brought, after it got dark, they brought the helicopter in and they had to direct the helicopter where to go as well. So we clearly had some angels watching oh, out for us. Absolutely. I get shivers from that story. I mean, that, that's the, the well, game. This, that's that the beginning well. of the story, though. Yeah. In, in my mind, here, here's the, the real uh, example of being hit over the head a couple of times with a two-by-four because I was a slow learner. About three weeks after that experience, I ended up in a situation where I had some time, and I realized I hadn't stopped to really reflect on, on that experience and what I got from and what happened. So I sat down at a picnic table with this paper placemat, and I just started making notes for myself. And I was supposed to be in a, with a group of people, and I just stayed out there and did that for 45 minutes. And at the end of the 45 minutes, the group came out, and uh, one woman that I knew well, key person in my life who was an, an elder model for being a lifelong learner, came up. And I started sharing this story with her, and she said, oh, my gosh, that's that's so similar to an experience I've had for the last six months where a, a key person reached out to me and three other people and said, I need your help because I was involved in a near-death experience. He'd been running a marathon, collapsed in the middle of a marathon, and, and would have died had a doctor not been running literally quite close behind him who was able to give him immediate attention. And he said, I just... I can't deal with this. He said, I have this nagging question. And the question for him was, why am I still here? And he asked these four other people, including this woman, to meet with him on four different occasions in kind of a clearing circle process to help answer the question. And she said, finally, after four times, we came to the answer together that he fully accepted and embraced. And the answer to the question was, to be who I am. And at that point, I reached into the back of my pocket, and I had the electrical surge going up and down my back for sure. And I pulled out that piece of paper, unfolded it. And at the top, I had the very same question underlined. I had a dotted line running through all these other little notes I'd made to exactly the same answer, word for word. So I think the this whole thing, is, as I look at it, as my life thing is, you know, I've been given a couple of chances here to keep trying to become who I am. Yes. And, and which is, you know, our life's challenge and our life's opportunity is, you know, try and figure that out and keep moving toward it. So I would synthesize from the story, the moral, which is that we become who we are. We can become who we are through the gracing help of others. Because unless that person responded and call the, the Coast Guards, and unless that doctor was there to run behind that person that collapsed, then there wouldn't be these inquiries. So it's the grace of having others around us in those critical, through these critical moments that enable us to even frame the inquiry and come into the epiphany that you're sharing. There are no accidents. <laughs> ah, that's beautiful. Thank you for uh, offering this story. So 
would you want to bridge from that to the your dissertation and and then sure. yeah and, and to extend um, your kind of metaphor of the gift in all this part of what occurred when i agreed to take or answer the call more appropriately to enter the uh, osr program which was three months after this near-death experience i just described uh. i was already inside the academic environment at that point and it was clear that i also needed to, to pursue a phd that i i wasn't an acceptable individual without that degree inside that structure and yet because i was already in what i did it in at that point didn't make any difference to them <laughs> You know, it wasn't wasn't critical getting over some threshold or a barrier. And so I felt quite liberated in thinking about what is it that I would really like to pursue that would be helpful to me? And so looking for something that was deep and expansive was quite important to me and got me into that new territory of the unconscious. And I, and I look back and I don't regret that at all, despite a very high price tag both financially and physically, to uh, get that additional perspective. And it reinforced a notion for me that's, I think, related to identifying myself as a builder. I also realized going all the way back to college that I wanted to become a specialized generalist. And those that combination is not an oxymoron for me. It's saying that you start by being able to approach anything, but you bring some very specific skills and capabilities, capacities, competencies to that in such a way that you can be helpful to anybody. And certainly exploring the unconscious and understanding how that can inform leadership gave me a lot of new insights and certainly a larger worldview to to work from in in terms of how do we actually um, make meaning of our place in the world? You know, myth is thousands of years old. <clears throat> Religions are thousands of years old. These are approaches that have been around for a long time, and it's freeing to liberate yourself from all this instant sense of everything is new and it's all dependent on some technology that'll save us, that kind of thing. Not really. When you get some distance on that, it's a, these larger questions of why are we here and how do we make sense of it all? And I, I just felt like it was an incredible gift to be able to think about all of this and my interest in leadership from that perspective and came to a really clear sense of importance on my part that leadership has a unique responsibility. And that is, if that's a role that's not administrative or managerial, but it, as a leader is responsible for the whole and that essence that is what it is that makes it greater than the sum of the parts. Yes, yes. Because nobody, nobody else is in a position to do that. Yes, so you are a builder first. And then you decided you wanted to become a specialized generalist and you became a specialized generalist in capacity building for leadership. Well, I aspired to that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask one last question before we do the, the parting closure, which is with this 
uh, entire rich experience. If you were to lose all that you know and keep only two ideas or two capabilities or two capacities or two practices, if you were to lose everything and keep only two of those things, what would you keep? I think that would probably be one concept and one practice. It probably would take more time to, to, to discern exactly which would be of importance for each. But I, I know from a lot of experience how important both of those things can be. One passion and one practice mm -hmm. uh, would, would be key for me. And the passion, uh, I think, would be around development and learning in some way because I, I just can't get off that path. <clears throat> It's so compelling to me. And in terms of the practice, I, there are a couple that I have right now, but I just noticed, and I particularly saw this in all the people that we invited into the OSR program as visiting faculty, people like Margaret Wheatley, Fritjof Capra, Ron Heifetz, a very long list of people who really established themselves in different key domains around leadership and systems thinking, design thinking, some of those, those concepts that have been so powerful for me and for a lot of other people. And they all had a practice of meditation that was very well grounded, very uh, much a part of their own structures. And you talk about in systems, it structure drives behavior. And I think it, it's not surprising then that those people would have something like meditation driving their behavior because it's so grounded. It's so important to being able to sort of release your, all that monkey talk in your mind and just being able to kind of get clarity about, you know, where, where am I grounded? Where am I centered? What, where am I going? The passion for learning and for continual development and growth and the, the grounding practice of meditation and connecting and attuning back to you, your life, your system, and through that to the bigger ecosystem that you are part of. Bill, as we bring this to landing, what parting wisdom do you want to offer to people listening to Create New Futures? Well, I think it would be kind of a summation of, of a, the threads in, that you sort of pulled out of what we've talked about that Never giving up and on becoming yourself is one way to, to feel like you're really thriving in the world. And in order to do that, I found that I have to keep trying to find mental models that I can, can try on, try to, to assume just to see what it feels like and to get a different view and sense of the world. And I find that, that books are, are a really powerful way to do that. For example, recent books that I've read along those lines, one was all about how, how the military had to completely rethink its role in the world. Mm -hmm. Another one was the critique of people who have gotten involved in all the um, social aspects of philanthropy and other things, that, how often they're just protecting their own Uh, success on their own way of having gotten whatever they got and not really willing to give up or do things that would help a lot more people. Uh, the the uh, book that having a big impact on me right now is the one about <clears throat> white fr fragility, really getting a deeper understanding about race. Those are the kinds of things that I find real helpful to just stretching myself and not allowing 
kind of firm world view to, to set in to have it more fluid and always expanding. So never give up on becoming yourself and do so in the context of continual inquiry and the assimilation of new learning, new models, and new opportunities. And one, one kind of practical way that this is, is fairly recent that has really intrigued me a lot, and partly I realized because of technology, it wasn't really possible to do this not that long ago. And that is, I found that I now consume most of my books by listening to them. And I'm often doing that while I'm walking or exercising in some way, which feels like a nice combination. And I listen to them at twice the speed of the original recording. First, it just is really irritating and it's hard to understand. After a while, not that long, actually, in my experience, you, you realize this sounds perfectly normal. I mean, I don't even think I'm listening to it at twice the speed. I always have to go back and check it because it feels like it's just the normal way of doing things. But there's two things that I've gotten out of that. One is that I find that I concentrate more clearly on what I'm listening to by doing that because it, it requires a little more attention and therefore I'm more absorbed in, in what I'm taking in. My mind wanders less. And secondly, that I am literally able to double my productivity. So it, instead of taking five or 10 hours to read a book, it takes five hours to get through a book. Yeah. If I'm, and I'm in a practice of watching a couple of hour long TV programs on a daily basis. And instead of that taking me two hours, it now takes one hour because I do it with the video as well. And I'm thinking, this is really pretty interesting. I couldn't have done that before when everything was kind of broadcast. Indeed. I couldn't have done it when everything was culture where it was all just storytelling. But I can do that now. And it, it gives me a more choice about how am I spending my time in a way that's really useful to me. And how many other ways could I adjust my life to sort of get twice the bang for it than I'm getting right now. Fascinating uh, advice. Thank you, Bill. This was a rich exploration with you today with some powerful insights and practical advice. Thank you very much. Oh, my, my gratitude toward you, Aviv, for both inviting me to do this and more importantly for the work that you're doing in the world. I really admire it. Here we are. We've landed this Create New Futures journey, and it's your time to take action, to create your new future. Here are a few steps you can take this week. First, Bill pointed that historically, leadership has been defined by developing competencies, and he made the distinction between competency and capacity. Competencies are behaviors that enable you to deliver efficient results, and lead to success. Capacity is about building your discernment to be able to know what is right to do. This idea has been popularized in the framing of doing the right thing, that's capacity, versus doing things right, that's competency. Competency is about getting from point A to point B in the fastest and or the most economical way. Capacity is realizing you need to get to point C 
instead of point B. Building leadership capacity involves development of the interior space and transforming the way you see the world. Your inner template of beliefs and values is the vessel out of which you express yourself in the world. And this is Bill's recommendation. Build your leadership capacity. Make the first decision first. What is the right thing to do? Only then make the second decision, which is how to do it right. Never confuse the order. Second, Bill reflected on two learnings from the Navy SEALs. First, that every organization needs to develop its Special Forces unit. And second, that the Navy SEALs cultivate a shared and distributed awareness and consciousness so that they are operating with greater field awareness and agility and therefore are able to respond faster in a smarter, more effective way. How can you cultivate with your team such shared awareness and consciousness about the mission in front of you? And then, how do you mold a bigger unifying mind with your family where you all embrace each other so that each can grow individually as you grow and develop the family unit stronger together? Third, Bill discovered early in life that the most important thing was not to be liked by everyone, but rather to find who you are and what you are about, and that to do that, you needed to stay attuned to your inner voice. We each have the power to chart our way. Leadership always begins with leading yourself first. Never give up on becoming yourself. That is the journey you are on. One more thing, you can reach me directly by phone and on email to explore how we can help you and your team create your new future. See you next time.